Queer Business Success, the podcast for LGBTQIA business owners, aspiring entrepreneurs, coaches, caregivers, and the allies who love our community. We tell the stories of why our businesses were formed, who we serve, our challenges and successes, and we offer sound advice to our fellow queer entrepreneurs. Our hope is to inspire, enlighten, and highlight the services that our LGBTQIA businesses and allies offer. If we can do this, so can you. We believe that we need more LGBTQIA business owners, not only for our community, but for a better world. Here's our host, Anne-Marie Zanza. Hi, we're back with another episode of Queer Business Success, and I am excited to welcome Jonathan Royal to the show today. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Anne. How are you? I'm doing well. It's Anne-Marie, just so you know. Oh, okay. Um, okay, no, sorry. No worries. Absolutely. I should have stuck no my glasses on. on. So, Jonathan Royal, tell me about who you are and what you do. Business-wise, the vast majority of my business involves some... The central core is hypnosis, as Mm -hmm. people will call it. But that branches off in various areas. It branches off into comedy stage hypnosis rules, where people do daft things on stage, but in a safe, controlled environment, where they're willing participants, nothing against anyone's will or anything like that. And in that area, uh, I have a big um, background in working in the LGBTQ plus arena, uh, including what what one of my really memorable shows was at the 21st anniversary of um, Pride in Manchester in England. Wow. One of the biggest ve- venues there, AXM. And that was just amazing with all the other things going on. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the big name acts, much more famous than me, that were on there as well. It was like, wow, I've been booked for this. So there's the entertainment side of hypnosis then there's the therapeutic side of hypnosis to help people overcome the habits addictions fears phobias panic attacks anxiety depression you name it there's a whole bunch of things there's an alphabet list from a through to z and yeah amongst that on occasion although i will say it straight up front in terms of when i do one-to-one sessions with people mm-hmm. uh, i very rarely see people who are, for example, wanting to build up the personal resilience, self-belief, self-confidence and self-esteem and self-identity to a level where they then feel comfortable enough to come out of the closet. And I very rarely see people who've just come out of the closet who need, you know, to boost up the resilience. Yeah. And the reason I very rarely, I've done it, and I'm proud to say I've helped people in those situations, But because I am not myself homosexual, Mm -hmm. however, there's all new definitions these days. Years ago, decades ago, I would have said, well, arguably I've got to be bisexual because there were encounters with males Mm -hmm. earlier years. So Mm -hmm. surely that's going to be bad. These days, I think probably the best um, terminology for myself is that which my daughter identifies as, and that's pansexual. Because as I understand it, that basically means it's not about whether somebody's male or female. Right. It's about whether or not you you connect with them. Right. In which case, yes, there have been experiences in my life where I've connected with people of all different genders, 
and sexual genders and yeah. non-genders. And, and, and to be honest, I think one of the worst problems the entire world's got, and I mean that from the perspective of someone who, who's some would perceive as being straight. I don't. I, I'm just. I'm just well, this is the. I'm thing. either. It, I'm either straight, gay, or queer. I. I what I am is Jonathan Royal, the hypnotist. Yeah. All, all I was going to add there is that I'm just Jonathan Royal, the hypnotist. Anything else is labels that society or situations have put on us. Why do we need those labels? Those labels are good in what can be good in certain contexts. Yeah, for people being able to feel they lay a claim and belong. Mm-hmm. and a sense of safety but by the same token they quite often also have the flip side of therefore you making yourself say that you something different and in certain contexts that may be true in a positive sense but it can overcomplicate matters as well we're human beings and well, at least this is the way I like to look at it. I know there'll be people who disagree with me and that's fine but we're human beings and as long as we are not physically mentally spiritually emotionally or in any other conceivable construct causing other people any harm why do we have to have labels um, kind of gives you an idea where i'm coming from law yeah i understand stuff, i understand um so i have a like hypnotism how does it work like how what is the theory behind it and how does it work okay well if you you could ask hundred different hypnotists that and get a hundred different answers okay from my personal perspective unless one of those hundred people answered identical to what i'm about to answer i would say that they are wrong because that's my personal experience and perception of it now perception is one of the key words the key to hypnosis is the person's perceptions and beliefs and view viewpoint on, mm-hmm. on things and what a hypnotist really does, at least this is the way I look at it, and this construct's worked for me for fast approaching 34 years, and this is what I've taught students around the world, is that all we do as hypnotists, we, we, it's not some special zombie-like state. Mm-hmm. Although you hear a hypnotist say sleep on stage, the person doesn't go into... Yeah. Uh, sorry, could, could if they did, they wouldn't be able to hear what the hypnotist said to then react <laughs> to the, the suggestions or commands. Um, now... In truth, the true creator of the word hypnosis is a, 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 a label, a tag, the things I don't like. I don't like labels full stop. But was a guy called Baron Felix de Henning de Cuvillers, who published in France a book in 1820. Wow. Uh, um, just for the record, because a lot of people say hypnosis, the term was uh, dubbed by a guy called James Braid in, eight, in 1843. Well, actually, there's a book in 1820 predating it, 23 years earlier by this guy, Baron Felix de Henning de Cuvillers, where he coins the term hypnosis. And he does relate it to not (laughs) snorry sleep, but transitional sleep. And what transitional sleep means is, you know, that moment at the end of the day when you're about to close your eyes or you do close your eyes, but you take a yawn, maybe sometimes lay your head on your pillow, close your eyes and, and. And you started to get a bit sleepy. I'm going to use the term just so people mm-hmm. relate to it. But you're still conscious, as it were. You're not fully with it, but you're not fully asleep yet. Mm-hmm. That is called the hypnogogic state. That is the transitional period of going from conscious 
to unconscious yeah sleep yeah okay yeah. and in the morning when you wake up before you're fully alert that oh coming around period that's the transitional sleep period as well but in the morning when you're opening your eyes from having been asleep it's called the hypnopompic state why they have to give things long complicated names to so that psychologists and experts can make themselves sound important and special <laughs> god only knows why don't they just say it's that bit before you're fully awake in the morning or that bit before you're fully asleep at night don't know but anyway so actually he baron felix de henning de Coville, in 1820 did say that it was that state just as you're going to sleep or just as you're waking up that state of mind that is what he labeled hypnosis okay mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i kind of agree with him there's lots of people out there that would say no that's wrong but how can you on the one hand if you are going to label things and you're terming what you do hypnosis surely you've got to look at what the person who called it hypnosis actually intended it to mean and he meant that transitional sleep state but you can artificially, i.e. not at the moment just before you go to sleep at night and not at the moment when you've just opened your eyes in the morning, you can artificially help guide somebody or guide yourself through self-hypnosis, auto-suggestion, into that transitional sleep state, state of mind, but in a manner where you just remain almost suspended for want of a better... It's, it's something that's intangible, so I'm using metaphor where you remain suspended in the transitional sleep state and don't go into the sleepy sleep state so that you are able to hear and react and enact, if appropriate, on the hypnotist's suggestions or commands, call them what you will, or it could be to your own commands. Could This could be you using your conscious mind to bypass the critical faculty, analytical area, executive function, some people call it, or as I like to metaphorically think of it, it's like a nightclub dormant of the brain mm -hmm. that's stopping, stopping shit getting in right. and stopping good stuff getting out. Mm -hmm. And you, you can, but in the transitional sleep period, it's like that's the moment where the nightclub dormant of the mind has gone on the coffee break and isn't there. So you can get directly in without resistance to your personal nettop computer, the unconscious subconscious mind as some may call it i like to think of it as a computer it's not i know there's evidence out there the brain doesn't work like a computer but it's a construct to explain things to understand them and the right results. yeah it helps it helps this all right so i got a quick question for you you know mm -hmm. how everybody puts out like these affirmations meditation things for when mm -hmm. you go to sleep so what the theory and behind it so what i'm thinking is how it works is that you know you're listening to these um, affirmations before you go to sleep. And in that period between you go to deep sleep, that period between, you know, I know that period because I use it to meditate. Um, yeah, well, it yeah. is, it is akin. In fact, you know, that transitional, that transitional period, but getting in the suspended state is, as you say, uh, it is the state that you can get into with meditation or with uh, creative, some people call it creative visualization. Some people call it the certain meditative states in Tai Chi. There's many different ways, labels yeah. to it and ways to get there, but it's, that's the one thing they've all yeah, got in common. I know both. It's so funny, both of us. If you're not, if you're not watching this on YouTube, both We're doing hand signals. John, Jonathan, Jonathan <laughs> and I are both putting our hands about six inches apart, and we're going. <laughs> 
that's that place. And so my goodness, thank you. So then what I assume then is that as you're going to sleep and you reach that liminal space between conscious and subconscious and you're hearing, um, you know, I'm just going to make something up. I am beautiful. I am smart. I am, you know, then it is able to get into the unconscious mind. No, it's more likely. No, you're right. <laughs> yeah. but there's just a caveat to that. It is more likely to get into the unconscious mind and help reprogram the personal laptop computer, but not guaranteed because in that transitional sleep state, unless you hit it just at the right moment, which you will do by going through the so-called hypnotic induction, self-relaxation process, a creative visualization exercise, a meditation, or one of the many other ways of reaching that point. The nightclub dormant of the mind, the critical faculty analytical area can sometimes just sneak back in or it's peering from a distance ready to run back in if needed. If it thinks it's hearing something that isn't, hasn't got a basis in reality. Uh, what I mean by that is there's a reason why so many copies of The Secret, the law of attraction book, so millions and millions and millions, and yet not everyone in fact, the vast majority of people who bought the book have not suddenly got everything they wanted uh, using the techniques in the book. And the reason is because it wasn't quite clearly explained enough in the book. People who've already got a background like you and me could read that book and go, yeah, oh, yeah, she's explaining it well. But that's because we've got certain information already in our head. The general public will read that and take it quite often too literally. And they'll be giving themselves suggestions whether it's in the transitional sleep state, a meditative state, or it's just even in a conscious book, sending it out into the world, more of an attraction type manner, which can still work as long as the suggestion, affirmation, or request to the universe, call it what you will, is worded correctly, worded in a manner that can be deemed acceptable, credible, and based in reality and fact by the critical faculty analytical area executive function. What do I mean? Well, Emile Coué, who was the French father of auto-suggestion, which these days is known as creative visualisation, hypnosis, um, or even law of attraction, its roots are in that. It's famous for the personal affirmation phrase of day by day, in every way, I'm getting better and better or a slight variation is day by day in every way, I'm feeling better and better. A, a tweaked version, which is slightly more powerful, is day by day in every way, I continue to become better and better, or I continue moving in the direction of feeling better and better. The reason being is that it's just ambiguous enough that if the critical you, mind can't the critical mind can't, can't go but that's not it. true right so it's allowed in but also it's ambiguous enough that the unconscious mind the imagination the subconscious call it what you will the personal laptop computer takes things literally it doesn't analyze them so it doesn't see it as being ambiguous it sees it as you are becoming better and better you are feeling better and better and thus is more likely to push you in the direction of feeling that way because it will push you in the direction of doing what you need to do to feel that way so it, it serves two purposes that little level of ambiguity so what i am thinking too is from you know all the experience i have and other things is that 
It's not the critical mind doesn't want us to change or to move in just different directions. It's that the critical mind is there to protect us. It is. Yeah. And so it's it's like, oh my gosh, she's she's doing something different. I got to go protect her. I got to go protect her. Yeah. And and it is really, you know, I mean, we've developed that because a lot of times we did, especially in childhood, a lot of us did. We needed we needed protection. But in childhood, unfortunately, we didn't have that protection. None of us right. did. Sigmund Freud, I call him Sigmund Fraud. He'd kill your father, <laughs> fuck your mother fame. Um, <laughs> Oedipus Complex, or kill your father, fuck your mother, Electra Complex. But anyway, mm-hmm. he, of that background, he did say some things that, that makes do sense. bear out. He was, but out. you know, but he was a, he was, he was a beginning. I mean, he wasn't, he didn't get everything right by any stretch of the imagination. None, none of us do, but the point yeah. is he did say some stuff that makes sense. Now he talked about the formative years. We're born as a blank slate. We only have two fears, loud noises and being dropped. That's what yeah. babies have. And then anything else is environmentally conditioned in some manner. But we're not going to get into the whole nature. Let's not do that. In terms of phobia, I could believe me, my view on that is entirely controversial. And I'll keep it short and sweet and tell you that it is that we're all born what some people would label bisexual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then influences have an effect on that after. Yes, there's genetic influences as well. But anyway. Well, maybe we are actually all born um how you identify and how your daughter identifies yeah, pants up. yeah that's a, another up. label it, 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 we're all capable we may not choose to and that's not saying that you choose to feel the way you do don't get me wrong because yeah. that would be highly offensive but because that's the way that could have sound but we could all choose to experiment if we wanted to we may not personally like it Fair enough. That's where personal choice and freedom comes in. The key is that people should have the personal choice and freedom to do that, which they feel right doing without criticism, judgment or conflict from anyone else, as long as they're not doing anything that hurts anyone else. So let me get you back to Freud. Yeah. Okay. So you said he did have a couple of good things that you like. The key one. Yeah. We're born as a blank slate, and at the formative years, he, he, he deemed them to be from birth to roughly around seven years old. Now, my research and experience shows me that I, I believe the formative years are more from birth until around teenage. Mm-hmm. And obviously, this is flexible. Everyone's different. But roughly teenage years, which is where modern psychology uh, and studies show It's not until around puberty, teenage years, that the executive function of the brain, which could also be deemed as the analytical area, the critical faculty or the nightclub dormant of the mind, actually starts doing its job. Mm -hmm. So given that there isn't the critical faculty analytical area up until about teenage years, that's why I justify my belief that the formative years are from birth until then, with no nightclub dormant of the mind, that's a bit of a tongue twister, any old shit, positive or negative, can get into your unconscious, subconscious mind, your imagination, onto the hard drive of your personal necktop computer. Some of it will be bad, some of it will be good. And then when the nightclub dormant of the mind starts work, it's, it's no good at filtering stuff out that's already gone in. It's only good, or she's good, or it's good, whatever pronoun you wish to use it be personal to you that's what it will be and it will be right it's only job 
is to filter incoming stuff. So whatever's already got in is already there and locked in. Unless you go through some kind of meditative ritual, hypnosis process or something to get them to have a coffee break and purposely go in and find the negative shit that's already been planted. It's like taking gardening the mind and getting rid of the weeds. Get rid of the negative shit, delete the negative programs from that personal laptop computer, and whilst you're at it, install some metaphorically antivirus, positive antivirus software for the brain, uh, which are all things I do metaphorically with clients through the way I guide them with words, you know, to visualise things in their mind. So that then when the nightclub doorman comes back on duty, the negative shit's gone because until that negative shit's gone, that built up from birth until teenage years, roughly, it doesn't matter how much conscious effort you make to, for example, change a habit or overcome an addiction. The chances are you will relapse at some point and go back to that addiction. Or you may never touch that drug of choice ever again, but because the negative shit that caused you pushed the buttons to make you become addicted to that, um, or to have that behavior or whatever, or that negative feeling has not been dealt with and is still there on the hard drive of the computer. They have to express themselves somehow. And therefore, what is called symptom substitution is likely to take place where they manifest in another manner through another habit, addiction, fear, or phobia, or through that, panic that attacks makes, instead. That makes a lot of sense to me because I was a chaplain for years and I used mm -hmm. to work on the post surgical floor. And there were people whose um, symptoms of, of trauma appeared in their body and they would have surgery. And then three years later, or two years later, they'd be back with the same pain in another area of their body, you know, because that's how it man that that's how it manifested itself. Mm. Not that they, and I do find that like my ex-husband, he grew up in a very chaotic childhood and like a lot of us do. And when he was not overeating, so like that he wouldn't drink, he would be overworking, you know, you know, 16 hours a day kind of thing, yeah. or he would drink. So if he was like really thin, then he would drink more than ever. And then the last one before I left, <laughs> before we got divorced was he started chewing tobacco. So like if he wasn't, you know, so if he always had some sort of addiction going on in the background of his life, because he had serious trauma in there and he was terrified to face that trauma. Do you know that each and every one of us, there are, I want to make this cover up from, of course, there are different levels of trauma. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I am not dismissing in, or, or wishing to sound flippant to anyone who, for example, has been raped, uh, abused as a child, physically assaulted, or, or anything like that. Those things definitely, by anyone's logical standard, rate highly if there was a scale uh, uh, of trauma. Very high on the scale. They, yeah. yeah. Although there are some people, it's like almost water off a duck's back. There are, you know, who... who although they may not fully dealt with things at a deep level, but they push it out and they're lucky enough that, that they manage to push out those underlying things that others might manifest as negative 
panic attacks, trauma, whatever, they managed to channel it into suddenly, you know, working for charities to support other rape victims or mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, right. They... Some, but but they're, they're a minority. For most people, high-end trauma like that, of course. However, now that you realise I'm not underplaying those things, all of us, without being consciously aware of it, by the time we get to our teenage years, I've got dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, potentially thousands of highly traumatic incidents mm-hmm. imprinted onto the hard drive of our personal laptop computer that end up having a negative effect on us in adulthood after the dormant of the mind has started their job. So continuing the metaphor from before, what do I mean by this? Well, I'll give you one example. So I said to most adults, without having explained stuff we've talked about, that although they can't remember it, that incident that happened when they were, say, three years old and they were at a mm-hmm. party and they picked up a balloon. It was the last green one, let's say, right? And then uh, a, 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 an adult walked past them and accidentally knocked them and they fell over onto the balloon and it burst and they started crying. And that's what the adults around observed happened to them. That that could store on the person's laptop computer and manifest as, you know, contributing towards them having an addiction or, or a fear or... Uh, another issue in adult life, most people would laugh and go, what nonsense are you going on about? But then when you look at it a bit differently, and this is unfortunately the true reality of it, the experiences get stored on the hard drive in the moment, the very second that they happen. And they remain stored in the traumatic manner that they occurred in that moment, in that second of reality as it happened. So the fact that we know as adults looking at that might go, how could that affect us now? That's because we're thinking as the adults. The memory, the experience, the trauma, the imprint is stored and rerunning almost like a loop as it happened when the child was three. So let's look at it from the other side of the fence. The three-year-old child sees a green bloom. It's the last one, grabs it. But in that moment, because of their wonderful imagination and the world they live in where fantasy is reality, there's no blurred lines because there's no critical faculty, no analytical area, no executive function. Their imagination does become real, like imaginary friend. That bloom could have instantly become a magical fairy kingdom castle within which is living loads of magical fairies. And when they get tapped and accidentally fall over and it pops the bloom, from the adult's perspective, to them, their magical fairy kingdom castle has just been destroyed and all the magical fairies killed. To them in that moment, that second, that instant, from their perspective, which is their reality, that is as traumatic in terms of the imprint, the memory, the trauma that goes on the hard drive, as it would be to us as an adult losing uh, a loved one or family member or friend in a car crash. Mm-hmm. And we have loads of those things, all of us, on our hard drives. So is it any wonder that pretty much everybody at some point in their life oh. ends up with an habit, addiction, a fear, a phobia, or feelings of not being worth it, uh, you know, for having that in, in a voice, imposter syndrome, or, or suffering from depression? No, I think, it's, I think it's inevitable. But it doesn't mean it has to remain that way. If people can be guided through meditation, hypnosis, 
whatever process, important seeming process under whatever label it's called, but to that transitional sleep period that we spoke about, that being in the zone, you could almost say, that sports people get in, is the same state of mind. It's the theta state of mind, brainwave-wise. Um, the critical faculty will bugger off. You can then go in and use certain processes therapeutic ones to help metaphorically heal your inner child at the age of nothing one two three four five six and all the way to teenage years when the doorman came on duty you can help them feel reassured that you're here for them now she's like a met it's metaphoric yeah i mean let I, them know they're okay and release right. that trauma but without them having to relive those things they never have to relive the things. It just helps release the trauma so the amygdala can release the blockage so that then they're not emotionally constipated anymore. It's like they've released it all. And I use the term emotionally constipated in my book. It's called Shitnosis. And, <laughs> and it uses all those kind of metaphors to make it easy to understand what's going on so that they can release it, delete the negative feelings and associations, and then install just positive stuff and safety guards, if you like, and antivirus software to move forward. So it's fully possible to overcome those things of the past, but it does take actually doing something and going through the process and, and, and releasing stuff and reprogramming stuff. So what I'm what I'm hearing, okay, so like, you know, there's a hypnotism that we see, you know, that is entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. But then there's also the hypnotist, and I would assume like is a really caring and loving hypnotist goes in and through the power of suggestion and, and how you work, you get past the liminal space with yeah. your clients and you help them, you know, to release these experiences so they can change patterns of behavior without like EMDR, without the client um, having to relive those experiences. Correct. I am totally against any process that metaphorically does what I, or, or genuinely yeah, does a lot what of I my... call mind rape. Making what? people relive stuff is unnecessary. Helping them, some people feel the need to come to a realisation and a different perspective on things, but that's mm -hmm. a whole different thing than having to relive the trauma. Yeah, because a lot of women I work with have been through EMDR, which is, you know, um, I, I don't know what the, the definition is. Eye movement and desensitization and reprogramming. Thank you. That, and they say it's the most, they have to relive everything. It's an incredibly painful experience yeah. for them. You, you don't. It's the, the person who put that together. I do a version. I teach a version of so-called EMDR in my book. EMDR is a trade name. It's basically the idea of looking at a finger and they wiggle it around with a pen. And all it is, really, it's only real worth is it fixates the client's conscious attention on one thing to the exclusion of everything else. And then the wiggling and stuff causes a level of confusion and disorientation to the critical faculty, analytical area, executive function, call it what you will. So it ends up going, excuse the language, what the fuck's going on here? This doesn't make sense. I've had enough right. of this. Right. And kind of get sensory overload so that then you are into the personal laptop computer. But once you're in the personal laptop computer, if you know what you're doing, there is absolutely no reason 
to have the client have to relive the trauma they previously did. All you need to do is help guide them to the areas of their computer, metaphorically, to find the files where those memories, thoughts, experiences and traumas are stored. And if it was a computer, would you have to open that folder? No, you just to, hit delete. You, you hit just delete. hit delete, wouldn't you? Now, it's not that simple with the human brain. You're not going to delete it. The memory hasn't gone forever of lots of traumas you don't even consciously remember. So it's irrelevant and you don't unconsciously remember them quite often. But the high end ones we talked about before, a rape victim, for example, may have flashbacks, recurring things. It's stuck in a loop, negativity, that they need to be able to let go of enough and release their emotional link, which they can move forward in life without it holding them back and without it regularly causing them trauma. And that can be done without them having to bloody relive the memory that they're currently, the, the problem is the fact that they're getting flashbacks and whatever. All we want to do, it's still going to be there, the file, but it's like, it's like taking the video out of a video recorder. I know that's an, showing my age there, or a CD out of the CD player. All, the, all right, the USB stick out of the computer, but we, <laughs> never, but we never took the file off the USB stick, so it's not in the computer. It's like taking it out. You don't have to put the USB stick back in the computer. You don't have to open it. Just by pulling it out is enough that the computer isn't going to operate on what was on that stick the way it was doing whilst it was stuck in. And metaphorically, that's what I do with clients or teach them to be able to do themselves through like my book, Shit Noses, is it's not dealing with things permanently because you can't do that. The brain doesn't work that way. But we can disassociate so that the things that triggered them and up to that point gave them a negative response, whether that was a panic attack or a traumatic feeling or whatever, that link can be broken. So that's like when when people talk about removing blocks, that can that sort of the same language, like you you remove the block. So it, that's a way of ver verbalizing it. You know what yeah. actually happens inside the brain? Nobody can genuinely tell you. Hmm. Everybody's approach is nothing more than a construct. Anything for which there is scientific or medical evidence or brainwave scans show one thing, there is an equal number or more studies the other way. Can I ask you something? Do you believe in divinity or God or something like that? And that our brains are much more like, our brains are, are like a store? <laughs> in a sense and there's or a gateway like, to the universal consciousness right um, yeah so, so, some would say um you know i'm not totally against that possibility certainly like, that's talked about in books like thinking yeah, Grow rich by napoleon hill talks about the universal consciousness and all creativity and how einstein uh, and other inventors of um um, such as edison with a light bulb uh when interviewed often made mention of the fact that you know, he. some people say he failed a thousand times to invent the luminous light bulb. He says that, no, he succeeded a thousand times in finding ways that didn't work. And he kept getting inspirations for other things to try. And he talked about going to sleep 
And in that transitional period, be saying to himself, find me another solution. And he said the same when he woke up and then something would pop into his mind unexpectedly during the day. And he, he did relate to that, to there being a universal consciousness. Now, is there a universal consciousness? I can't prove one way or the other. Or is it just that we're all born the same with access to everything, but we're not shown how to access it? And the way to access it is the way to get onto that computer hard drive metaphorically is to during those transitional sleep stages. I find this conversation fascinating. As for God, by the way, no, I'm an, I'm an atheist. Thank God. Okay, I was just curious. But I believe that we are, for example, the Lord's Prayer says, Our Father, who art in heaven. That's one sentence in it. And there's another sentence later, on earth it be done as it is in heaven. Mm -hmm. Now, I've deciphered the entire Lord's Prayer in a product I have out called The Bible, God and Hypnotism by Jonathan Royal. And I, I say that we are all our own gods. We are all our own creators. So our father, heaven or hell is a construct of your mind, of your laptop computer, of the virtual reality. And there's a lot more evidence coming out into the world that we live in a, a, a kind of simulated reality. People see things differently. We, it's impossible for me to say that I see the colour green in the same way that you see the colour green. Even right. if we both identify something that's green as being green, it's impossible to prove that we see it and perceive it in the same manner. Same way, yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is our father. Our father is our laptop computer. You art in heaven. Heaven is your mind. Or, or your perceptions, your reality. On earth, in the world, is done as it is in heaven. It has to be in the mind of man. What the mind of man can perceive and believe, it can achieve. So let me ask you something. We've had a lot of um, examples of people who are odious human beings. <laughs> Like not good, like, like, I don't think most of us would define them as good people. Um, like, for example, the former president of the United States, um, we have really odious human beings. Yeah. Epstein with his child molesting and trafficking. Yeah, and all that. Yeah, just, and just like a lot of examples. Yeah. But a lot of these people are like often considered like what we consider successful like in one area of, it's just successful in one. I'm, I'm thinking out loud now, right now. It's like, basically they're just successful in one area of life. So even if they had, I, I, I believe our former president here in the United States is a, a, a survivor of horrible child abuse. <laughs> um, and I think that's how he, you know, has survived, learned to survive. And that's how his mind works. Um, but just because they're successful in one area of their life or what we as as like a society often value success, you know, financial success or um, perceived or perceived to be yeah. or perceived financial success or um, popularity or being famous they still can have a boatload of trauma in there that they've never explored. Oh hell, yeah. yeah, but but what I'm saying is, is to be successful, how we perceive success as a society actually isn't really successful. 
No, no. And, and then the problem is that's because of um, the twisted, devious, sick-minded, I'm going to use evil, um, people that are largely in positions of power. And there are certain positions of power that if somebody wants to be in it, there's that old saying, isn't there? if somebody wants to be in that position of power, they shouldn't bloody Go be Go for it. Them. Yeah, I don't you want know, to power, do that. Power, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and when you... When you look at that, and I've got a documentary that came out in uh, 2019 called Extreme Danger, Extreme Hypnosis, subtitled It's Time for the Sleepwalking Zombies to Wake Up, which examines religion, politics, the education system, basically every area of everyday life from the cradle to the grave and exposes how the powers that be, the, the world's elite, the top 5% um, that, you know, own 95% of the resources and control them. What they do to control, manipulate, and influence the mass populace us, so that they can carry on being the top 5% is what I expose in the documentary. And um, because of that, part of it is that they want the mass populace, the majority, to feel uh, to, to be in a state of permanent confusion and disorientation or sensory overload or a permanent state of fear, false evidence appearing real, false evidence against reality, so that instead of facing everything in life and rising and becoming stronger, the majority will fuck everything and run. Uh, that's what they want. They want people to become emotionally and spiritually weak, so they're easier to influence, manipulate, manipulate control. Yeah. When you realise that, you have to think, well, why is it they need to do that to make people remain in the state of fear or um, confusion and disorientation. It's the freeze point. You've got fight, flight, freeze and shite. Fight was metaphorically fight dinosaur to get food or to live yes. another day, get away yeah. alive. Mm -hmm. Flight, run like the clappers, hopefully get away alive. Shite, yeah. shit yourself, literally. Uh, and nature programmed it that way so that hopefully the stench would make the threat go away, run away from you. Or freeze, which is that point where your head goes, uh, um, do I run? Do I fight? Uh, uh, what do I do? What do I, it's the rabbit in the headlight syndrome. That's where they want the mass populace. Because then your critical faculty analytical area is busy. And the instructions, the commands, the suggestions they give you with nefarious intent through advertising, through politics, through the, ma the media that's controlled by five percent you know the world's media is owned by just a few people makes you more easily easily controlled and they know this they have they they've invested so much money into studying these things people can go and check for themselves and investigate things like mk ultra which was the cia after the war in america after they smuggled joseph mengel and other uh, nazis out of germany into america that's not conspiracy theory. The documented facts are now in the public domain. You can go and investigate for yourself. Um, they did experiments in trauma-based mind control and how trauma or fear could be used to basically make people more easily manipulated and controlled. So that's a whole other podcast. And so I want to get, as we are just chatting away here, Jonathan. Um, so I would love to hear about what is the biggest success of your business right now? Uh, the biggest success, well, I've just, 
Again, success is perception. Some people will say, well, that clearly has to be that which is made, currently making you the most money. And to me, no. no. The part of my business that's bringing me the most financial income at the minute isn't what I consider to be the most successful. That's mm-hmm. just because I look at life differently. To me, my biggest success right now is my latest book, Shit Noses. How mm-hmm. can you get over the shit in your life and get your shit together? Because... <laughs> It would need to be selling a lot more copies to become the financially more successful thing. Mm -hmm. But I still consider it to be the more successful thing. And I'm very proud of it for one key reason, because because I've self-published it, it means I was able to put it onto the market at the lowest possible price. So this retails on Amazon for $17, Mm -hmm. American dollars or 14 pounds, 70 pence, United Kingdom sterling at the minute. Now, it's not just a book, although it is a book, obviously, as people will see when they see the video one day, or they can hear it clicking there. Um, <laughs> but it's got tons of these things in, and this is one of the things I'm really happy about, is I've got loads of um, QR codes in. Mm-hmm. That people can scan with their device, and it immediately then takes them to virtual online video training or therapy sessions with me, whereby I talk them through and demonstrate the self-help techniques being taught on the written page. Because some people will learn enough by reading, but some people need to see things demonstrated to fully understand them. That's me. So I've included both in this book so that whichever way people learn best is included and available to them. Also, I fully understand, unlike a lot of self-help books that have come out, there can millions of pounds of self-help books a year go on sale. And yet, why aren't people suddenly okay? Why don't they just use the techniques they've learned rather than going buying more self-help books? Well, largely, I think, well, part of it's laziness. Part of it, people don't see a, 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 a tangible result quick enough, so they give up and they think we'll try something else. And I think a lot of that happens because most of these books don't make mention of or accept or admit the fact that not everybody's the same. We are all born a blank canvas, but by the time we get to the point we can do something to help ourselves, uh, adulthood, for example, our late teenage years onwards, we, we've all become different by way of our environment, our experiences, blah, 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 blah. And some people will be at the end of the scale where they are very very uh, left-brained, logical, analytical, sceptical, critical people, okay? But other people will be the direct opposite end of the scale where they're very right-brained, creative, spiritual, instinctive. And something that requires immediate faith or spirituality type frame of mind or a more creative approach to implement is going to work great for these people over here but for the logical analytical types they're just immediately going to dismiss it or they're not going to find it credible enough to have enough faith and belief in it to have the conviction for it to bypass the critical faculty for example and there's a sliding scale in between both Mm -hmm. of them Mm -hmm. my book addresses this and it gives people the tweaks the alterations they may need to be able to use the techniques in a way that becomes completely specific, personal, individual, and unique to them because you are unique 
in the experiences you've gone through to bring you up to this point in life. It is sounds like an absolutely fascinating read and actually very helpful for people. So Jonathan, what is the biggest challenges that you have in your business right now? That's an interesting one. Um, I think it's probably the same as a lot of people. And that is certainly in England. And I know this is happening in a lot of other places in the world as well. The cost of living crisis, um, petrol costs going up. So delivery costs going up means that everything in your shops is costing more to buy. Energy crisis, could have oil, Russia war, uh, meaning, you know, people... Uh, um, who previously are being forced, a lot of people, certainly in England, and I guess a whole bunch of other places, are being forced to decide between heating or eating. So I think like a lot of business owners, I'm having to spend more time and more money to generate the same level of profits. Are obviously making decisions based on that. And I'm not saying this because I want them to go and buy my book, but if they did go and buy my book, I'll say to you this, there is no upsells. I want to point that out. A lot of self-help books, you get them as well. And at the end, they go, we've told you a bit about our system, but now you need to go on this website and sign up for this monthly online program. Or something. Well, we'll take money off you every month. No, I call that screwing people over. If you claim <laughs> you're going to sell them a self-help book with steps in it, they're going to change their life potentially. Give them everything they need. Right. And, that's why I bought the QR codes in the book. So there's no upsells. There's nothing else to buy afterwards. It's If you get shit noses, you'll only be investing $17. And the reason I say that is because if the decision was to spend $17 on getting a copy of shit noses and potentially changing your life on so many levels for the better, or spending $17 on treating yourself to uh, putting it towards the cost, because that probably won't be enough, putting it towards the cost of a takeaway uh, being delivered rather than making something at home that would be cheaper. You know, that gives you instant gratification and a feel-good moment or evening getting the takeaway. But investing into shit gnosis, assuming that you actually A, read it, B, watch the videos, and C, more importantly, get off your ass and put it into action. It's not a magic wand. You have to actually put some effort yeah. in. But I, I can provide you with the tools by the printed page and those videos that could transform your life and give you those feelings uh, that you'd experience for a short period of time through self-gratification and getting the takeaway. But you could have loads of those feelings for the rest of your life so you have to weigh up actually, you know, sometimes. Weigh what the option is, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I usually ask a different question today than I usually do, but I'm going to ask you a little bit of a different question. I'm curious now as to what the other question is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's not, I, because you've, you've been very consumer um, uh, focused in this discussion. So I'm going to ask this question, which is, if someone is thinking of pursuing hypnosis to yeah. help them with um, whatever blocks they have or whatever things they have in their life. And they, and they, of course, hire you, but maybe they don't hire you. What should they look for for somebody okay. who well, is like qualified? I, yeah. I would, before I answer that fully, I just want to say up front, no, don't hire me. I don't want you to hire me. You want okay? me to buy the book? 
<laughs> I want you to spend $17, get the book, Shit Gnosis. Then I want you to actually read it, actually watch the videos and actually get off your ass and put it into action. Do that and you will never need to spend a penny with any mind therapist, life coach, or get any form of book, video or audio from anyone, including me, ever again. That's what I would like you to do. It's just that I would like, I don't know, I make the grand total of about $2 from each book sale, okay? So in English money, about £1.50. It's not a lot of money. So, you know, I'd like, hundreds of thousands of people to do this and change their life massively from a selfish point of view that would mean that I could buy my daughter a house when she leaves school uh, and set her up and stuff for life but from a being a selfless point of view it would also mean that there were hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of people who were happier and who were able to overcome their habits addictions fears phobias or whatnot I obviously make mention of um being available for therapy at the back, well, mind therapy treatment. And here's what it says. Although it should not be necessary, if for any reason you feel that you still need someone to hold your hand and to be that authority figure, the perceived authority figure who gives you permission to change, then I may be available to be that person for you. However, It will cost you at least £500 United Kingdom sterling, payable in full in advance at the time of writing this, November 2022. And there will be various hoops that you will have to jump through before I will even agree to take you on as a client. As my time is valuable, I'm often booked up many weeks in advance. Now, this isn't a sales ploy. It's making it clear because sessions can be conducted online via Zoom to anywhere in the world or in person by prior agreement at my therapy office located in Castleton near Rochdale, Greater Manchester, England. In the first instance, check out this link page. And then it says, and then email me, there's the link with details of how you feel is that I can help you and why you feel I am the correct person to help you. Seriously, you need to convince me why I should spend my time on you and with you when in truth, Everything you need is already contained within the pages of this book, Jake Knowles. <laughs> well, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Royal, thank you so much for your this incredible conversation today. I learned a lot. I really learned a lot, and it really, thank you, put, yeah, it really put into like you validated a lot of my own beliefs, but in a in a different way. And so I'm really appreciative of this conversation. I really learned a lot. And we are going to put all the links so you can find the book for Jonathan because he apparently doesn't want you to connect. <laughs> no, unless, unless, by unless, all means, go. If you want to connect with me on social media, just to leave a comment and go, hey, I really enjoyed the conversation <laughs> you had with Anne Marie on a podcast, then by all means, please do that. I'd love that. It's great self validation to me. It makes me feel good. In which case, my social media handle. Uh, on all platforms except YouTube. On YouTube, it's Celebrity Hypnotist, my YouTube channel, where there's a whole bunch of videos there for free. But on all the other platforms, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, link, all those type of things, it's at Royal Hypnotist, which is R-O-Y-L-E-H-Y-P-N-O-T-I-S-T. Feel free to connect and, and give feedback by all means. What I'm saying is I don't want to take more money off you. The book's all you need. Unless, of course, you want to become a diploma-bearing, clinically qualified hypnotherapist yourself, 
then that's a different matter. You can go to my website, ultimatehypnosiscourse.com, and there is it'll explain the investment there. But generally speaking, to the people on here that I've come on to talk to, the vast majority, no, I don't want – I'd just like you to invest $17 in yourself. That's it, ever. All right, Jonathan, thank you so much, and thank you. Thank so- you. You've been listening to Queer Business Success, the podcast that highlights LGBTQIA plus businesses. New episodes are published regularly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other listening platforms. Wherever you're listening, take a moment to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Are you an entrepreneur who's also queer? Want to share some of your wisdom and experience with the rest of us? We'd love to have you on the show. Just click the link in the show notes to apply to be a guest. Until next time, queer friends and allies, keep taking care of business.